Boom, what's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyan. Very excited to be talking about digital currency, talking about blockchain, talking about what's at stake. We have Brock Pierce joining us on the show. Hello. Hi. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Glad very excited, very excited. We have so much to discuss. Brock Pierce is a crypto pioneer, a philanthropist, community leader, having raised more than $5 billion for companies he has founded. He's the chairman of the Bitcoin Foundation and co-founder of EOS Alliance, Block One, Blockchain Capital, Tether, and Mastercoin. And you can find Brock's links below as well as his Twitter. Brock, let's start things off on this big history perspective. We find ourselves as stewards of Earth. What's your current take on the state of humanity? Well, I, your choice of words, stewards and stewardship is, you know, probably one of the main things that's missing. <laughs> um, you know, uh, too many humans wanting to be the boss, too many humans trying to be leaders, and not understanding that what that really ultimately means is to be stewards. You know, that's what real leadership is. Um, and, you know, as things change, ultimately the leaders of the future are going to be stewards. That's what's going to separate us. Um, so state of humanity today, whew, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a little scary at times, but I'm 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 an optimist. I'm very hopeful. I believe that, you know, if we were living in a, uh, uh, you know, call it the never-ending story, or some people like to call it a simulation. If you know, however you want to describe this wonderful place, this wonderful world in which we live, uh, you know, it would have to be better than like any movie, right? It would have to be better than any story you've ever read. You know, so it's gonna have, it's got to have a, a good ending, or a, you know, it, 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 throughout that story, it's gonna it's gonna you know get tough, and you know you're gonna have your moments of doubt, and you know, but it's always I think the darkest before the dawn. So I, yeah, I I I see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I I believe in us. Yeah, yeah. And what would be a core? principle or skill to develop to become a better steward? Well, I think it's mostly about putting, you know, others before yourself. Um, but not always. There's, a, there's an order to this. And there's a nuance, too. And one of the keys I, I discovered to happiness is that I've never met a happy person that's very selfish. Yeah. Um, that's not to say that we don't all have to be somewhat selfish. I mean, it's kind of like on the airplane in the video. It's like, you know, put your mask on first before taking care of others. But once you get your house in order, you know, the key to happiness is evolving beyond selfishness to selflessness. It's taking that me and flipping it upside down into we. Um, and so, you know, that's really what stewardship is. You know, leaders and people that are trying to grab power, you know, the people that want to be president or the people that want to be CEO, uh, you know, are often those that are taking care of themselves. You know, the best presidents, the best CEOs, the best leaders are the ones that don't want the job. You know, it's the ones that show up in service, which is ultimately stewards. It's people that make sure that everybody else is taken care of before themselves. It's the people that eat last. You know, it's the people that make sure, you know, those, those are the leaders that we're ultimately looking for is stewards and you know as you figure out in life who you want to follow and who you want to listen to and where you want to get your guidance from you know identifying you know the stewards from the leaders and being able to you know identify that will serve you pretty well in life uh stewards are normally you know good people to follow you know as i like to say too because i can't 
you can't always serve everyone, right? There's not enough time in the day. I always say I live my life in service, and you know, I, I'm in service to those that are in service first and foremost. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, very, that's very profound, and I think that it gives us a, a very strong way to live our life by embodying that skill set and that principle of being a steward first and foremost. We, sometimes we need our awareness expanded to realize that we are stewards. Sometimes it, it, um, and so these are maybe some of the, 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 these potential experiences, especially as we get into the ages of the augmented realities and these, these ways of being able to see the evolution of Earth and the evolution of civilization and be like, hey, we are all one. We did all come from one. We are stewards. I'm very blessed, you know. When you're struggling to survive, when you don't have your house in order and you're, you know, when you're, your me isn't, you know, stable, it's very hard to, to, to see beyond that. So this is not like something you just say, okay, yeah, I want to go do that. You know, you kind of have to get past that basic level of needs being met. Yeah. And then it is up to you. Then it does start to become a choice. You know, but until then, you know, you don't have it. And a lot of the world doesn't really have that choice because they're caught in this, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. vicious cycle of survival. Yeah. And so I, I don't take any of that for granted. I am very blessed and, yes, you know, yes, eternally yes. grateful for the fact that I can, ha I can you know, be this way, think this way, feel this way, because it's not just an option. That's why some people go, oh, that's crazy, that's ridiculous, that doesn't make any sense to me. What are you talking about? That's not the way that this game's been designed. It's dog eat dog, you gotta get what's yours and step on who you need to to get there. And I understand why some people feel that way, because in the world in which we live, you look around, that's kind of what you're taught. You know, that's, you know, what you're shown is, you gotta fight for what you want, you know, uh, you know, because that's, you know, most of the examples that you see when you turn on your television and, you know, when you, take a look at the world around and and when you try to live this way normally then someone takes advantage of you and then you're like wait what am i doing you know no good deed goes unpunished you know and so you get often turned away from this path many times over until you eventually say no i just need to make the right choices and where i spend my time and who i help and that i can't necessarily help everyone because they haven't they they, they still got a you know they're caught in a loop that they need to resolve themselves you know you can't always be there to help everyone but I, there, I you know there's a lot of reasons why people may not you know identify with that and they might find it you know think that's crazy and that doesn't make sense and it's not realistic you know yeah, yeah. it's a utopian sort of mindset mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, if, if it is really a, a roll of the dice that we end up living in such abundance and privilege with the roof over our heads running water food all these all these baked in necessities versus those that don't then it really uh, inspires us to help make sure that if it was just a role that, that can we can we uplift to make sure that we can all experience that privilege that 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 together um, and make it easier to contemplate the cosmos to contemplate our expanded awareness you were teaching me this and this kind of gets us into the journey you added into Maslow's hierarchy of needs internet and financial ability, right? And I think that's so cool. Tell us about this journey, because we listed a bunch of the things that you're a co-founder of and that you've been an investor into, but even a movie star in your younger days as well. And it's very interesting, The Mighty Ducks, and it's very interesting thinking about you know, your journey and how you ended up living your life and getting to this point that you're at now. Give us this, this journey. Well, I mean, uh, 
how far back do you want to go? This life, I assume, will start here. <laughs> um, uh, you know the past ones? You familiar with it? <laughs> um, uh, in this life, yeah, it started um, acting. I was a kid in Minnesota, and uh, I was blessed with some success in, in that area, and that eventually led me out to California, and, uh, and then did some more of that. And, I started when I was, you know, before I made any decisions. I was, you know, you know, a couple years old when I started working. And the, the first job, my first memory in life takes place on a set making a commercial uh, for KCRW called Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys. <laughs> and so um, uh, that led me to California. And my first night in L.A. was Northridge Earthquake, which set my journey in this weird sort of like, uh, it messed up everything. I didn't have money. And so I went out to California for three months. I had a chance to, you know, my shot to strike it big or not, and you go back home with your tail between your legs. And that earthquake messed up the entire market for three months. I mean, it was basically a miracle that allowed me to, uh, uh, to book a job that allowed me to have the budget to be able to stay another week, which then led to a next job and then another job. Blah, blah, blah. But then about the time I was 14, 15, I'm like, uh, is this what I want to do? I know that this is what I'm doing, and I'm doing very well at it, but am I really an actor? Uh, and I told myself, no, I said, I'm an entrepreneur. Because uh, I grew up, and I was selling software in like second grade, and building every lemonade stand business imaginable. And so I was super entrepreneurial, uh, you know, buying, selling, trading, baseball cards, magic cards, everything. I mean, I just did all this stuff all the time, and I was a very avid gamer. Most people don't have software in that category of lemonade stands and trading cards. Well, it's where I went to church. I went to church. Uh, 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 my mother was, uh, my mother's a minister and a bunch of things. And uh, 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 I had to go to like church five days a week. And because my mother was getting her, you know, degrees and things. And uh, the church next, the building like, you know, out the back and, you know, nearby was a distributor for like word munchers, number munchers, Oregon Trail, all these <laughs> things. And I would go dumpster diving Interesting. and you know, pull out all this return sort of stuff. They were fine, they just damaged box or this or that. And I was in like second, third grade and I would take them to school and I'd rent them for a dollar. I'd sell them for five if you wanted the box and the manual and all the things. I mean, back then you just installed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's so I was, I was even back in the day like doing video game rental business. Yeah, yeah. Entrepreneur, yeah, <laughs> Like very, very young. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and no one had money. They'd have to like ask their parents for the buck. <laughs> so you had to like pre-sell it and get the kids to go <laughs> to home go. and tell their parents, hey, I, I, can, I can buy educational games. <laughs> yeah, correct, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I grew up in, in, in the movie business. And so for me, I always uh, wanted to be the producer. You know, I wanted to be the person that like, you know, made the movie. I didn't want to be the performer. I wanted to be the person that like puts it together and you know, that was the job that like, that's the person I identified with. I didn't fully appreciate you know, what it took. I'm 14 at 15 at the time. And then I just decided like not act anymore. And I quit acting at the height of my career. I was being offered starring roles in movies, which is like one in a million. Uh, and I just said, not interested. I mean, my poor manager and agent and publicist and all these people, because it's rare that you you know, you have that level of success. And, and if you're the you know, manager, if you're the apparatus around them, that's when you get paid. And your, Score. Age, your age was? 15. 15. How did, and did this come to you when you were 15? This realization that you're an entrepreneur, not an actor? Yeah. You felt it. Yeah. I, well, I, my, my, my poor 
agent and stuff. I'm like, yeah. they're like, they called me up. They're like, and I, I go to, I remember the lunch meeting. They're like, Brock, seems like you're just like, you don't want to do this anymore. What's going on? You, you struck it big. This is the opportunity. This is where you're going to make all the money, all the good stuff. I'm like, I just don't feel it. And they're like, but you have to just think about how lucky you are. You know, millions of people would love kill for this position, you know, and you don't want to do it. Like, not really. I'm not feeling it. But then, you know, I did one more movie. I was offered to star in this. Uh, I did two more films after I made the decision to quit. I, I did a film in Egypt because uh, the idea of going to live in Egypt for a few months as a movie star with all the special access to all the things sounded kind of cool. Uh, yeah. So I got to do that, and I got to engrave my name on the top of the largest pyramid and all sorts of weird stuff. Uh, super fun. Uh, and then uh, I wasn't going to do anything again, and my, um, uh, my agent took me out and said, Brock, uh, I know you don't want to do any more of this, but I'd like, would you be willing to do like something for charity? It's kind of like your last, last movie. Billy Graham is working on this film, and they're looking for uh, a lead for this film with Michael Bean and a bunch of interesting actors and it's a it's you know obviously this is for the church it doesn't pay um, and you'd be the star and you know whatever whatever uh, would you be down to do that I'm like uh, yeah because it seems like it's for a good cause I will go do that movie and so I, I did my last film for charity for Billy Graham when I was 16 and then I retired from acting and I went and tried to become a producer and that was really really hard and I didn't succeed at that but I, we made a couple of little like films as kids with friends and then uh, and then I got into media. I got into tech. Yeah. What happened is I started seeing the internet yeah. you know, taking off yep, yep. and started seeing you know, people raising money and building companies. And I'm like, uh, I'm entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. I know tech. I'm an actor. I can pretend to do this. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so I got, into, I got into doing that. And so uh, I was, again, very blessed. I ended up raising $88 million when I was 17, 18 Crazy. in the internet 1.0 phase. Crazy. To build what you think of today is like YouTube and Hulu and Netflix. We were the first ones, uh, you know, we created words like webisode. We were the ones creating the format of how video would eventually be distributed over the internet. Yeah. And then I also played lots of games, yep, yep. which then led me to game currencies, yep. uh, specifically things like World of Warcraft. And so I identified in 1999 that people playing these games in these persistent worlds were accumulating digital or intangible assets. And you know, it seems obvious now, but back then, the idea that these things would have value was crazy. Yeah, yeah. You know, people would be like, are you kidding me? You're selling a virtual sword, you're selling gold, you're doing all this stuff. It, it, why would anyone pay money yeah. for a virtual sword that's not real? Yeah. I go, well, uh, you play golf, right? And they're like, yeah, I go, do you like to use good golf clubs or bad golf clubs? They're like, good golf clubs, obviously. I go, because that's how you choose to spend your discretionary time and your discretionary income, right? your expendable income. I go, if you chose to play World of Warcraft with your free time, wouldn't you want a good sword over a bad sword? Doesn't that improve your game experience? And they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I go, that's what it is. You know, people, human behavior is the same, whether it's in the analog world or the digital world. It, you know, the same things still motivate us. It's, you know, utility or yeah, yeah. social status or, you know, something, right? We all want to increase our uh, compute because we all are on these devices all the time. So we yeah. want the better technologies that give us better utility. Yeah. 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 So that's, that I, I got into the games business when the internet bubble burst because we went bankrupt like everybody else, <laughs> 99 plus percent of companies in 2000. 
And uh, I went and pursued game currencies and started making a market for virtual currencies and games like Second Life and World of Warcraft. And we built a supply chain of 400,000 people in China that would play games professionally to mine digital currencies. We were PayPal's largest customer for years. We were Google's largest advertiser for a moment. We launched Alipay, you know. So I got very deep into gaming, intangible assets and currencies, and cross-border payment systems and emerging markets and, you know, creating jobs in places like China. Because the reason why people play games by the hundreds of thousands is you could make more money playing games than you could as a doctor or a lawyer for a moment there. And that motivated people, and I needed lots of currency. And so I had to teach the world how to play games to make money, and China was the place I went to do that. These are, all these pieces are now fitting together into understanding who you, who you became. Because all the way from your acting and producing uh, and to the tech sector and to the, the gaming, all these pieces on especially virtual currencies that people were... Like, it's crazy that you even went all the way to be part of the launch of Alipay, which is now one of the uh, largest payment systems in China. Well, I should release, the, I, I do need to release the contract because it's just too good. So we were uh, PayPal's largest driver of customers, right? After eBay. But eBay wasn't an individual merchant. We were PayPal's largest merchant for years. Uh, uh, Project IGE was the name of their credit card payment, uh, direct payment system, which was codenamed after us. I was on their advisory board uh, for whatever, all the payment stuff. And so in China, because we were the main company doing all the cross-border payments, Taobao and Alibaba, which is the company that produced Alipay, you know, who you know is Jack Ma, they came and they said, you know, Brock, we, we need you to use us, you know, because they were a startup with no traction. They go, you're the person, your business drives all of it. Uh, all customer adoption, PayPal, your industry is basically what will make us. So what do we have to do to work with you? I said, I, I'm, I'm, I, I would love to help you, but I have hundreds of thousands of people in China playing games to sell me currency that I sell to you know, the rest of the world. If I, the reason why they all sell to me is because they don't have access to cross-border payment systems and they don't have you know, foreign language customer service. If I enabled cross-border payments and yeah. push my entire supply chain to you, that would kind of probably be really bad for my business. And as much as I'd love to help you, I, I can't do that uh, I, <laughs> for obvious reasons. They're like, well, what do we have to do? I said, well, if you give me an exclusive in perpetuity on digital assets, uh, I would do it. And they're like, okay. Wow. And so I signed a contract which they violated shortly thereafter, which would have been had I lived backwards. I have a multi-billion dollar claim, which... Uh, uh, I looked at for a moment and then I, I, I view suing people as like going backwards in time. Instead, I should just release the contract and tell the story because it's, it's an interesting one. Whoa. And then this journey led, it, it makes sense with hundreds of thousands, millions of people playing already in virtual worlds, earning, like you said, the best sort of of items in order to use in those worlds and also being able to trade then the currencies not only in that virtual world but in the outside world as so you can go in and out. This slowly gets you more and more interested in digital currency. You were also, you can you get, get us, get us in, into, the, into the thick of things now with all of the last five years with all of the companies that you ended well, up. Well yeah, so eventually yeah. Bitcoin, right, happens. 
Uh, and my opinion of Bitcoin in the early days was that I said that Bitcoin or something like it is the future. I just don't know if the future is now or 25 years from now. It's a market timing thing. I learned with broadband and video that, you know, just because something's an obvious future idea, like people are going to watch videos on their computers and their televisions are eventually going to become networked and have internet connections and things, that just because you're right doesn't mean you'll be successful. There's a thing called market timing. You know, I, we were 10 years before the broadband was, you know, there to a point that you could do this feasibly. Um, and so my thesis of Bitcoin is when does it take off? So it wasn't until 2012 where I started to see a critical mass of adoption where I'm like, all right, future is now, it's happening. And that's when I dropped every other thing that I was doing. I had a lot of game businesses and other things and I just started wrapping up everything else I was working on so that I could move full time into this space and more or less do nothing else. And so that's essentially what happened. I got very deep into Bitcoin, mining, uh, and then starting a company every 45 to 60 days. I was essentially operating as an incubator for a while. And then I started too many companies that I, there's only so many things that you can manage effectively uh, uh, or poorly. And I got to the point that I couldn't manage anything, anything more even poorly. Uh, I had spread myself too thin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm like, but I still want to do more. There must be more to do. And so then I started a venture capital firm, the first venture fund in the space called Blockchain Capital. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm like, well, I can't keep doing more things as a founder, so the only way that I can get more exposure is yeah, yeah. as a check writer. So I just need to go fund everybody and you know, put money into the next 50 companies that I think are interesting. Um, and so I had an interesting sort of ride throughout that piece. Like the, the notable stuff that was exciting is, you know, I ended up being one of the uh, founding board members or co-founders at MasterCoin, which was the first ICO. And so we uh, you know, invented the ICO, Blockchain Capital, the first venture fund in the space. Uh, Tether, which is where we put the first real world asset on the blockchain, and that's doing now like five to 10, some days now 20 billion a day, but you know, call it 10 billion a day, it's doing, you know, three and a half trillion, you know, a year, <laughs> you know, to 10 trillion a year of transactions. I mean, these are, it's getting into numbers that are like, trillion, is that really? Double check. Yeah, Actually, yeah, that, yeah. That, that, it is those kinds of numbers. And this is because the real-world items that are that you really want to be able to put on a decentralized, distributed ledger, it are very expensive. Well, we invented a kind of category called stable coins. Cryptocurrencies are volatile, and so with Tether, we put the U.S. dollar on the blockchain. So it's literally just a digital dollar, backed up by an actual dollar. And so sometimes, if you think the price of Bitcoin is going to go down. What you do is you just convert your Bitcoin into Tether or USD, we call UST, and then the price goes down and then you buy back in. So we created the mechanism by which you could stay in a cryptocurrency but have fiat money. And so the cryptocurrency markets really needed, you know, a stable instrument to be able to, you know, in, out, in, out. Yeah. Otherwise, anytime you wanted to sell, you had to wait a week for a wire to hit a bank account and then sure, to send sure. it back a week and pay crazy fees. It also enabled um, crypto exchanges that didn't have access to banking and payment rails, you know, that didn't have the licensing to be able to offer fiat money. It gave them the same tools that the Coinbases have. It gave them, it allowed them to have U.S. dollar essentially deposits because you had crypto to crypto exchanges and then you had crypto to fiat exchanges. What it did is it gave fiat capability essentially to fiat being a term for government issued yeah, yeah, money. Yes. Um, 
uh, to, to all the exchanges. So it was a huge, huge hit. I remember at the time, everybody in the industry, because there were only about 100 of us at the time probably building things that mattered, thought it was the dumbest idea ever. Like, why would we ever want a digital dollar on blockchain? I mean, we're all here because we don't believe in that stuff. I'm like, you needed a tether. Yeah. Yeah. You needed to tether the real world to this world um, to, to make it all start to work better. Um, I said, well, let's see how it goes. You might be right, but I think that, you know, this matters. I mean, take a look at the developing world, you know, because I spent, uh, you know, I, a lot of people would criticize me in the early days, like, Bitcoin is bad, you know, because if you read the news at the time, every headline was sensational. It was like, it's only for drugs or it's only for illegal gambling or, you know, yeah. you know, or it's a scam. You know, yeah, yeah. there was no one writing positive articles about Bitcoin in 2012 or 13, not many. <laughs> and you had to go far and deep and wide to find positive statements. The media was really just sensationalizing the negative aspects of it. Interestingly enough, one could say similarly to when we were initially developing a unit of exchange yeah. thousands of years ago, figuring out, well, why does this one have any meaning or purpose? Well, I don't, this village or this civilization does not agree that it does not. So this is another sort of bubbling up of similar. Yeah, same story, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Broader distribution now. Yes, um, yes. And, and the world changes quickly. Yeah. Uh, everything's accelerating. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I get criticized. Like, you know, sometimes people, because, you know, some news stories or something would come out about Bitcoin, and I'd be out of the restaurant and someone would be like, or they'd overhear us talking about it, and, they, and someone would be like, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, yeah, I, I know all about that. And I'm like, you do? And they're like, yeah, 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 there's something, you know, always you know, try to be really confrontational, start a fight almost. And, and I'm like, you know, I'm always trying to be engaging, you know, playing a little bit of reverse psychology. And it's like, okay. And so they're like, well, why should I want Bitcoin? And I'd be like, you shouldn't. And I'm like, what do you mean I shouldn't? I go, well, it's not for you. They're like, what do you mean not for me? And I'd be like, well, do you have a bank account? And they'd be like, yeah. And I go, well, you have a piece of plastic in your pocket that lets you conveniently pay for things? And they'd be like, yeah. And I go, and you have a rule of law here that's here in theory to protect you and often will. And you probably have faith in the system and of the 200 currencies in the world, you've got one that everybody wants more of. And you probably take all of that for granted. Most of the world, two-thirds of the population of the planet is unbanked or underbanked. 70 million Americans are unbanked or underbanked. But you're not one of them. And so I see why it's very easy for you not to understand how the other half lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you go south of the border, if you go look at Africa or Southeast Asia, you know, those people don't have those basic needs met. Back to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs sort of Correct. stuff. Today you need these things. We have tools that allow us to have opportunity in life. A majority of the population of the planet do not have those tools to live a life of abundance, to live a life to allow us to think about, you know, how we can choose to spend our time. You know, and one of the things that this sector is doing is it's democratizing the global financial system in a way where every human being on the planet will have equal access. That doesn't mean equal lives, but hopefully at least equal tools which then eventually can lead to equal opportunities, so on and so forth, given a sufficient amount of time. And so, and, and the people that benefit the most are obviously the least fortunate today. And so it's, uh, uh, you know, this was like a, the conversation I'd have with people is it's like, why would you want a digital dollar? I go, well, in Venezuela, uh, you know, they all want dollars right now. And if you had a way of getting them digital dollars, you know, the Venezuelan people would be benefiting greatly. 
You know, so there should be demand for this stuff around the world. Everybody wants U.S. dollars. Let's tokenize it and send it to Africa. Um, and so far, it seems to be kind of working. The, the stories that you illustrate are very important for us to, to become a little bit more humble by, by fully getting behind the eyes of when we don't have access to internet, when we don't have access to financial tools, that when we don't have those frequently available at our tool belt to end up really giving us an ability to self-actualize and, and, and experience even further self-transcendence that, that that can sometimes that can sometimes inhibit the flow that we want of, of actualization and transcendence. So I, I, really, I really think that that example is crucial, especially since it's more than 50% of humanity is unbanked or underbanked, which is so much. Then, okay, so then we're talking about banking people, uh, giving people uh, an, an equal opportunity to be able to participate in the global financial markets start businesses, do very, uh, ena enable their creative potential to flourish. So then the, you also have another quote about the underlying technology. So that's kind of on the digital currency side of things. Then you have a quote about the underlying technology, which is this blockchain technology. Yeah. You have, you, you believe that that's completely replacing the internet, not somewhat synergistic. Well, with... it's, it's synergistic. Okay, I, okay. I don't think the blockchain is going to replace the internet. I think the internet is going to be replaced by something new, a new internet. Yeah, okay. Uh, and one of the components of that new internet is blockchain. Okay. But it's not the okay. sole, the blockchain doesn't replace the internet. The blockchain gotcha. is essentially a ledger and a security protocol and a governance system and a very resilient, you know, decentralized system that creates immutability and a bunch of other stuff. But that's, those are gonna be some of the core tenants of why the system's gonna be upgraded. And the, the main thing I'd say is that the internet itself today is broken. It's, yes, the internet is broken, but why is it broken? Because that sounds like a crazy statement. Uh, when the internet was first being designed, it was known how to secure the internet, at least from a cryptog cryptography perspective. The problem is there, the computer processing power at the time wasn't sufficient to do it, and let's just say the powers that be didn't want it that way. Um, and so the internet was designed by design to be insecure to you know, have back doors and things. And so we've essentially built up the entire internet on a faulty foundation. It's like building on sand, right? You know, you're building, you know, buildings that are not built on solid foundations have problems over time. Mm -hmm. And the entire internet has been built on a faulty foundation. Mm -hmm. So what you're seeing is you're reading about more and more hacks and information being accessed and your information being accessed and, you know, and you're only seeing bits and pieces of it. You know, these problems are becoming greater and greater and greater. I mean, there's great job opportunities in internet security. You know, the companies, the internet security companies that are out there have more business than they can handle mm -hmm. because this problem is becoming that prevalent. And now you have nation states that are providing state-sponsored hacking. There are countries that allow people in their country to hack. The government condones it. They won't arrest you if you go rob Americans on the internet. They give you a high five. You get a bonus from the government. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it, the problem is you know, accelerating. Therefore, a change is going to be needed. We're going to have to go through an upgrading of systems. And that over the next 10 years, I believe, is going to happen. Slowly, a new internet's going to emerge. It's going to look just like the one you use today. You won't even notice anything changed. It's just the underlying architecture and stack is going to change in the same way that you don't need to know what's inside of a phone to be able to use it. You sure. know that, you know, you know what, how to use it and, you know, yeah, yeah. what the benefits are. You know, it's still going to look like websites. It's still going to look like apps but the back underlying infrastructure and the tech stack 
is going to be different, and the blockchain is providing the security layer. God bless mm -hmm. you. Thanks. Salud. So, so let's 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 double click in though a little bit deeper because when you know when we say things like we use a t piece of technology and that technology we are kind of a little black box relationship with it. As long as we can double click into the plumbing and understand if we so choose to is very important to inspire more people to get behind it, to keep building it up, keep advancing the tech. Well, that's our our space is all open source. Yes, you know, we're, yes. we're an open source movement. You know, which by nature means you can come learn how it works if you're curious and you want to learn. Yes, yes. Okay, so then, you know, let's, let's, because we can double click into the plumbing of the internet, like you were describing, let's say version 1.0, and see that the security protocols, there are just issues with the fundamental structures, let's say at first built on top of sand, that have been making the security companies what they are today, with the mass amounts of volume of companies that they want to figure out, oh, how do we keep, stay everything secure and private, et cetera. So my question then would be then, is then the current foundation of the internet, can it be augmented in its existing way to add the blockchain technologies into it? Or is, is this what EOS is? is the, yes, please speak on this. Yeah, so it's, it's a different enough architecture that each the, everything will have to be rebuilt, you know, kind of on the back end. But that doesn't mean you'll notice it, and it doesn't mean it all happens at once, right? You're going to be seeing new entrants enter the market, and you're going to see incumbents. And any, you know, anytime you have this radical change, it was like when the internet first emerged. You know, when the internet came along, it disrupted all business to some degree. Some analog businesses that weren't on the internet went on the internet, and they're still around today. You know, some new companies that said, "Hey, we're going to build a bookstore online," Amazon replaced most of the bookstores. And you know, these, are, these are these sort of jump ball opportunities you know, that don't come along very often and historically, but they seem to be happening more and more often these days as we're going through this sort of accelerated change. Um, but yeah, we're looking at another one of those types of moments in time. You know? And will the you know, uh, Facebooks of the world you know, upgrade in time mm -hmm. or will something else come along that might replace it? You know, from a decentralization perspective, you know, if Facebook were to be usurped or Instagram by, call it a blockchain version of it, and Facebook is working on this, so it's mm -hmm. kind of a relevant one, how would it be different? Mm -hmm. The main thing is we're already all using, call it Instagram or Facebook or whatever system you want to say, so it would have to be substantially better because Facebook's going to make that migration, and this will be an interesting one to watch. Yeah. If we were going to use a new system, and based upon everything we feel and you know, what we know today, it would have to, we'd have to own our own data, first of all. You know, right now, we don't even know where our data is. It's all over the place. Yes. You know, people are coming into our most, you know, these tech overlords are coming into our most private places, yeah. taking, our, yeah, yeah. taking our most, you know, private of things, and then selling it, you know, without our knowledge. So, you know, one of the big things that's likely going to change as a result of this is, you know, us taking back our data and that doesn't mean that data can't be sold, totally. but it'll get sold with our consent. With our consent, like the, moving into a world of consent. Right now, people are coming in, you know, in, in, you know, violating us in our private places without our consent. So and that's is, that's not okay. Yes, yes, yes. This is it's a non the non consensual 
uh, asymmetry in knowledge about data, our own private data. There's everything from the tiny little devices we have inside of our homes all the way to our, our biometric data. And that is, uh, we are not in control, like having little valves and letting the data flow to whichever destinations we will consensually agree for it to flow. So that- And, I, and I'll consent, because yeah. I want the benefits of some of these things. Absolutely. But I want to decide who I give it to, yes, which yes. businesses. I want to know who, and I want to say, okay, I think that group operates with integrity. Yes, I'll let them have my data. You know, and I'll get paid for that data, or I'll benefit from the service from that data, but I want to decide. If, 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 uh, if we were given the ability to flick on the let my location data flow so Google Maps can continue having its epic I would, because I'm going to use it. I believe well, over 90% of people yeah. would still say yes. And then the, and we'll, and we'll, and we'll see. So now the question would be then, how does the, it get structured as, you know, as a visionary, I know you keep explaining that there are going to be lots of different innovations that are made in the space. And then humans will decide with their, with their finances and their attention, which ones they want to pick. What does a, what does a really powerful vision of what, uh, of what it could be look like to you? Well, I, I think in the future, we own our own data. You know, we consent, you know, to who gets access to that data. And we're gonna do that either because we wanna make money off our data because it's we know it's very valuable, we just normally don't get any of the money. <laughs> you know, normally, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles take all of the money from for our data and we don't even get a piece of our own data. Yeah. Normally, you know, yeah, you go work a job and you get some of the fruits of your labor and your boss and the company, you know, takes a piece of it too, but you normally get something. You know, today we all get nothing. And we don't even consent to where it goes. I mean, it's, I think that that's one of the big changes that's gonna happen. I think the world, uh, you know, just on every level, it's, it, we're gonna move into a world of transparency, you know, where we know what's going on. You know, right now, most of us are walking around in the dark. You know, basically, the lights are coming on. And Are you okay with that being in a global surveillance style of transparency? Well, I mean, th th this is where, you know, things get very, you know, interesting and in how, you know, how global surveillance it is, and in that transparency, is it, uh, you know, every you know everything that everybody does, or do you have pseudo anonymity? Yeah. You know, I tend to believe in, you know, if you can say, okay, I don't want this data to be shared, and it's private, and we're going to build systems around things where privacy is very important. I'm one that's going to opt in mm. for privacy around certain aspects of life. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going to let anyone uh, monetize my bedroom, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, it, what I talk about in my bedroom with my wife or, you know, things of that nature. Sorry, that room is off limits, you know. Sure, sure. And then uh, you would have the strongest security <laughs> protocols around yeah, that. Yeah. But then versus this episode being online, you would let not only be let flow as many places as possible. Yeah, I mean, certain things are going to be. And, and, but these are the decisions that I don't get to make we collectively are going to make, right? Uh, you know, technology is technology. It doesn't make these sorts of decisions. It doesn't have morals, right? We decide, you know, the outcomes of these systems and the world that we're gonna collectively create is going to be determined by the quality of the people that build it yes. and the intentions by which they do it. That's right. Which is why, you know, this is kind of a call to action, you know. For that selflessness. Our, yeah, but our future is going to be determined by those of us that are building it. So. Let's make sure the people that are doing the work right now, the builders, 
Yeah. And the early adopters are doing it with the right intentions. Because we are co-creating it now. And so that question, yes, I, I, these are the things that keep me up at night. You know? Yeah. You know, and there's a certain amount of like, it's back to governance or government, right? What do we collectively believe is the right amount of privacy versus transparency that's needed? And, you know, you know so that we are, you know, generally what you do in your home and what you do that only affects your life is none of my business, as long as you're not harming others. But when you start to go into the public spaces where you impact the lives of others, then this is where the rules start to, you know, matter more and more. And in those spaces, you know, what, pri what privileges do you have? And these are the discussions that we collectively have to have so that we can collectively come to the best conclusion and make the best decisions. You know, I'm, uh, I spend a lot of time educating governments around the world you know, which, you know, a lot of the early crypto people are kind of more anarchistic or, you know, I, I believe in, I believe that uh, uh, I want to create a, you know, I'm not here to like destroy systems. I'm not here to try and lead a revolution. You know, my perfect outcome is this is an evolutionary event, a win-win event where the incumbents and the new entrants, you know, collectively can win. Clearly that can't happen everywhere, but that is the ideology yes. and the vision that I want to sell people. If you choose that you don't want to participate, obviously you're going to eventually lose if this does happen, right? So bring people to the table. And naturally the first reaction of incumbents, governments, or anybody that's, you know, if you're in power, your first reaction to something new is fear. Something that might threaten you, fear. Yeah. But how do you conquer fear? With, with knowledge. With, with information. With hopefully an R&D aspect to the new technology. Yeah, yeah. with information. Yeah. Um, and so if you want governments or incumbents to make good decisions, you need well-informed governments. Yeah. And it takes people that know how to explain it. Yeah, correct. You know, and so I, I, I've, always, I've signed up for the mission of like, yeah. try to explain this to people. Because guess what? Once they start to understand it, and they start to understand how that future is beneficial to all of us, you know, people start saying, well, actually... I kind of like that future. I want to help enable that future. I want to, and I'm going to do that by experimenting with it, with that sort of R&D type of budget. Yeah, yeah. We're very grateful that you've been going and teaching people about the transition to the new decentralized infrastructures that hopefully blossom a, a much more uh, actualized civilization. And there's a couple interesting keys to what you're just saying about you you use the words crypto maximalism and chain agnosticism oh yeah <laughs> which I, I i really like those two a lot and so it's 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 letting all of all humans go at play all these old incumbents as well as the new ones go at play figure out what is going to be the best codes for us to pick up and, and use in in the future and then this is a lot of what these companies that you've co-founded are, are doing is they're pushing the paradigms in these in these departments but now i want i want you to explain to us there's so much happening across the world with these new you know these new camps of of futurism and technologies that 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 maximize potential you're you're spearheading one yourself as well in san juan in puerto rico and when when i'm learning about this i'm 
you're, you know, you're walking down the streets and people are like, oh, it's Mr. Bitcoin, you know, and things like that. And so, but you're very playful with the community in terms of your ability to realize that, like you wanna, you're turning some of the older um, thing into some of the museum slash um, uh, Freemasons halls, this type of stuff into community centers, um, founding banks, eco-resorts. You're sort of starting this new civilization there. So teach us about, about what that exactly entails. Well, two, two, two parts to that. One is you talked about sort of chain agnosticism and stuff, which is a very important one that I like to get out there because what tends to happen is I'm a Bitcoin person. I'm an Ethereum person. I'm an all of these things people, but you get a lot of people that are, call it newcomers to the industry or have a very vested interest in a specific outcome. And so what happens is they're like, oh, Bitcoin good, everything else bad, or Ethereum's gonna win and everything else is bad. And you get a lot of this me against you, left versus right, my chain is better than your chain, my coin's better than your coin. This maximalism, is nor which is normally around vested interests, is it reminds me of religious fundamentalism. And we've learned over thousands of years that's not good. And so I'm always very quick to point out, I'm chain agnostic. I don't play on any team and I don't care. I play on all teams, that is, as long as I think that the people behind it and the project looks like it has good intentions and it might make the world a better place. As long as those things are there, I'm, I'm here to cheer you along and be helpful to the extent I can serve you too. Because yeah. uh, I don't care who wins as long as we make the world a better place. And so, you know, Keep an open mind. We're building open source systems, hopefully with open minds and open hearts. And that means that you might have a project that looks like my project. And I taught a lot of entrepreneurs this early on too. So they'd be like, no Brock, I can't sit at this dinner with you know, th those two people. I'm like, why? They're, well, they're working on the same thing. They're my competitor. I'm like, your competitor? Mm. What does that mean? And you know, I'd get through, and, and I'd basically take them to the, 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 the thing that I said, that person that you're threatened by understands you more than almost anyone in the world. They share your exact passion, your exact focus. They get up every day trying to do the same thing as you. Mm -hmm. But you're afraid of that person and you don't want to meet them. This is the person that gets you better than almost anyone, more than your partner. Yeah. I mean, your wife or husband or lover, boyfriend. This, that, that, that's someone that probably if you can get past the fear. Yeah, correct. Uh, could best be your friend. best friend. <laughs> and why are you here? We yeah. talk about trying to make the world a better place. Yeah. You should be helping each other. What you might figure out is you decide you wanna merge and work together. Yes. Or you have different views of how the world's gonna change and then it's an A-B test. Yeah. And you should be cheering them on and they should be cheering you on because if either of you win, everybody wins. And maybe you should be swapping some of your stock or tokens with theirs so that you don't care which of you wins. You're just taking two different A-B tests into the market. Mm -hmm. You know. Stop, be, stop being this fear-based sort of thing and start realizing that you have a lot in common. And That's a very interesting perspective to what some people call like, you can take an example of like Lyft and Uber into the yeah. market and, and think if the stocks were swapped 50-50, if the co-founders were collaborating on the computer vision for the vehicles and advancing the autonomous systems faster and not poaching talent from each other, all these different things. Is Scarcity it, mindset versus abundance. It's, it's kind of one of the key nuances to that. Yeah. And realizing we're an industry that has, you know, you know, at the time, you know, 0.01% market share. I'm like, why are you worried about fighting over someone that's got a thousand customers and you've got 500? There's billions to be had. <laughs> like, really? 
stop fighting with each other. There's a whole big world out there. <laughs> it's like the race for a monopoly, but then the intent is potentially not yeah, yeah. set. So I spent a lot of time on that. And so, yeah. you know, I, I, I try to like be a, a, a good guide. You know, I try to be a Sherpa a mentor and advisor, a, you know, a helper, a helping hand, mm-hmm. um, which is a bunch of, what eventually led me down to Puerto Rico. You know, um, I came to this sort of, uh, when I was blessed with having made a few dollars more than I had made or lost in the past, and I'm really good at making and losing fortunes. Um, I've been blessed in that regard, <laughs> mostly because I don't care uh, that much. And, uh, uh, you know, I started to really kind of ask myself around, you know, what are the ways that, you know, you know, people measure their own success? What is the KPI or the K, you know, key performance indicators you use to measure your success? You know, what makes people happy and these sorts of things? And it's like, I don't want to measure my success by, you know, how much money I have in these things as people start to, how much Bitcoin do you have? How much money did you make? It's like, who cares? You know, I, I like going to places like Burning Man where there isn't even money. You know, like these are not the things that motivate me, you know, and it's like, okay, so what, what does motivate me? How do I want, want to like define that? And I had been uh, taught a lot of classes at the Singularity University and uh, really like some of the things I heard Jason Silva say over the years. And I don't know who coined the term, but it was one of those two because they both started saying it around the same time, which is that a billionaire is not someone with a billion dollars, but someone that positively impacts the lives of a billion people. And I'd heard this line and I'm just like, that is the thing that resonates with me. And so, you know, I started like, you know, making this part of my shtick. I get probably most of the credit for it now because I've probably blown up the, the phrase, but I didn't invent it. I didn't coin it. Um, it's yeah. a very beautiful phrase. And we have, a, we have an asset of you giving a talk using the slide of the new billionaire positively impacts the lives of billions of people. I love that. Yeah. yeah and so because I, what, what happened is. I felt this responsibility when the crypto market in 2016 and 17, all of a sudden, all these young people are making all this money and having more money doesn't always make you a better person. I think it actually probably does more often than not the opposite. And so I felt, I didn't give my talk, I, if you've ever watched any of my speeches, I almost rarely talk about anything I've accomplished or anything I've done unless there's like a story, you know, why, why this, what that, you're getting into something long form. I take the time when I've been, if you're taking the time to listen to what I have to say, I want to impart knowledge. I want to impart insight. I want to impart, you know, things that are like elevate your thinking. And so when I go have conversations to the crypto community, it's like, all right, we're in a bull market. Everyone's making tons of money. Oh God, <laughs> this is not going to be good for most of them. So let's start telling them something they need to hear. It's not about the money. I know you're all getting rich for the first time in your life. This is not a good thing keep your feet on the ground, yeah. you know? And so these are the types of things. I'm always thinking about what does the market need right now? You know, when we go into a bear market, then they need some cheerleading, you know? In the bull market, they need people pulling their feet back to earth. Mm-hmm. You know, as I like to say, bull markets produce bullshit, bear markets bear fruit, you know? You know, when the markets are up and everyone's making money, it attracts all the worst qualities. It attracts all the worst people. We kind of saw that a little bit in the last couple of yeah. years. And then what happens is, fortunately, the market goes through the cycle of a cleanse. It purges out all of the people that are showing up with the wrong intentions. And then the market tightens back up again. The core group of true believers, real builders are what's left. And then the market has another swing back. And we go through these cycles. Yeah. Necessary purges. I'm glad that, you know, yeah. I'm, I, I like bear markets because that's when the real work is done. That's when you look around the room and everybody you see are like, 
the right people. They're there because the intention is to build a transformational yeah. technology. Yeah, they're not just there for the quick buck. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're not there just figuring out, you know, how to, you know, it, 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 in those bull markets, it's very hard. You know, that's when I, I, I start to check out. It's like, all right, let's wait yes, for the yes. next purge and then I'll come back and like, you know. And the only thing I do during those bull markets is I try to talk some sense into people. And so when I say I check out, I realized wherever I was going for a little while, interesting people, superheroes would show up from all over the world. And I'm like, well, if this is the case, let's see, I'm in New York, okay, people will come here and people just jump on planes. I'm in London, people jump on planes. I'm in Hong Kong, people jump on planes. I'm like, if wherever I go, really interesting people show up and then people want to start companies nearby wherever I'm living, like, you know, people pack up homes and they're like, oh, Brock, you're going to be living here. This is where you spend most of your time. And all of a sudden, the neighborhood starts just filling up and the houses in the neighborhood are all getting bought by interesting people that, you know, share more and more of these mindsets. I'm like, I need to run an experiment. If I'm becoming a bit of a, a nexus point, you know, individually, and I can live anywhere, where should I live? Should I live where I want to live? Or should I go somewhere that could use some help? Mm -hmm. You know, should I go somewhere where my being there might actually have an impact? And this is an experiment, it was a crazy idea, and everybody's making money on crypto. I'm like, all right, I'm just gonna go disappear and I'm gonna go to Puerto Rico where literally there was no, almost nothing happening that was relevant to me. In terms of opportunity cost, it was the, as big a sacrifice as I could possibly make at the height of that the highest point in my life, like my acting career, I walked away and I went and said, let's go see what we can do in Puerto Rico. <laughs> With the intention to help positively impact yeah. the communities of Puerto Rico. Yeah, it was right after Hurricane Maria, you know, so following the hurricane, you know, everybody, there were three and a half million people in Puerto Rico, it went down to three million. And of the half a million people that left, who do you think left? It's the people with the means to leave. Mm. The people with the intellectual capital, the human capital, the financial capital, the spiritual capital. Mm. Those with the means to leave do. You know, it's like, all right, well, that's a brain drain. How do you combat a brain drain with a brain gain? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's go see if I go down there and, you know, beat a little drum or something, you know, will people come? And will they start to build? Will they start to do positive things and impact the community positively? Can we help in some way? Can we contribute in some way? And so it was an experiment. It's still in its infancy. It's only been a year and a half, mm -hmm. uh, but about a thousand interesting people have moved that bring, you know, those talents and, you know, you now have lots of startup accelerators and incubators and co-working facilities and co-living facilities. You know, you have angels and mentors and, you know, kind of all the stuff, all the, the, the stuff that allows a startup ecosystem to exist, like this place has so abundantly, it's there now. And there were six was, startups that raised money last year, like in the last six months, like a million bucks each. That had never happened before. Uh, Puerto Rico, when you walk into the yeah. top Silicon Valley VC firms, when you mention Puerto Rico, they're like, oh yeah, that's a blockchain hub. How did Puerto Rico get a spot on the map in tech and exactly. innovation? Yes, it, it was yes. not an obvious place, but what happened is Puerto Rico is now on the short list of places that are considered to be a hub of innovation, which, what, what yes. were the odds of that happening? But, and then teach us about the way that then the community of the three million inhabitants of Puerto Rico are being integrated into this blockchain technology explosion so that it's not obviously. Well, the first thing is a lot of them have heard about it now. <laughs> it made the news and it's yes. been part of the conversation. Uh, and the first reaction, like I said, your first reaction typically is to fear that which you don't understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, but Puerto Ricans understand decentralization 
and resiliency better than you know almost, almost everyone. Another couple of interesting data points in the context of Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico has more bachelor degrees per capita than anywhere in the United States. Interesting. Puerto Rico has more artists per capita than anywhere in the United States. Interesting. Puerto Rico is filled with talent. Yeah, yeah. An abundance of talent. What they've been lacking is, an, is, is opportunity because, you know, people keep leaving because there's not enough opportunity. Um, okay. You know, so what if we can start to change that mindset? What if we can start showing people opportunities? What if, you know, startup, you know, what if being an entrepreneur, I mean, if you were a Puerto Rican that wanted to be an entrepreneur, you had to move. What if we can bring a few angels down here, some mentors, some capital, you know, and you know, all of a sudden there's 10 Puerto Rican startups or 100 Puerto Rican startups. When you're graduating from college and you, or you want to, or whatever stage you are in your life, if you want to be an entrepreneur, it's now an option there because the tools are present. Back to like not having the payment system, not having these things. There's basic tools that are needed to do certain things. You know, what we have is we're a very small group of people, but we bring some of the tools that can get the ball rolling, right? While simultaneously bringing the tools to help the artists and entrepreneurs there flourish and understand new technologies, leapfrog, all that good stuff, the potentially the ones that are maybe sliding off and unable to maybe afford some of the new um, rates and stuff need to be integrated as well. Yeah, we're not driving up prices of anything. I mean, <laughs> prices are continuing to probably go down pretty much systematically there. I mean, there's still, it's a process. You know, okay. Puerto, Puerto Rico's tourism is way off, all sorts of stuff. It's you know, it, it still has a long way to go. And, and, and like, for example, you know, technology is, you know, call it core to my uh, toolkit. So I can, this is where I can be helpful with barely making any effort at all. But it's not what I spend my time on in Puerto Rico. You know, I try to think about the big macro issues. You know, the thing that I lose sleep over constantly and back to like calls to action. Puerto Rico only has two to three weeks of food. Very little food is grown on the island. Almost all of the food is imported, imported. even though it has some of the most fertile soil imaginable. Wow. And so if like Miami got hit by a category five storm and the supply chains got impacted, like this is, I lose sleep every night. I want to go figure out how to farm and how to do, you know, biodynamic, organic, how to fund and finance all sorts of co-op systems. I want, I want to help Puerto Rico with farm its, with its egg infrastructure well yeah. it was back to food resilience yeah. and puerto ricans understand the importance of resilience having gone through the storm we know puerto rico can handle you know some meaningful amount of time without electricity but puerto rico probably can't go very long without food yeah yeah like anywhere food security food security is the thing that i mean like it, if so like if you're totally, in, if totally. you're into farming and like you're 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 a a superhero that understands how to do this stuff and you're like not sure what's going on in your life you know, here's your call to action, you know, come, you know, come help uh, teach uh, and plant some seeds, you know, grow some yeah. healthy food locally so that, you know, you know, the food's mostly imported. It's from California. It doesn't even make any sense. Yeah, yeah. This and, is, and the historical this is, is because of sugar cane and the, the sugar barons and the plantations. All the all the original farming was torn up and it was replaced kind of stuff. Your your fascination with um, with what you're doing there is is one of the um, inspirational pieces that hopefully people from around the world can then latch onto and try and, and help uh, develop and give opportunity for people to shine in new new. New new ways of, of thinking. I, I like I like what what I'm excited to see what ends up evolving from that and how these pockets can evolve around the world, moving in that direction. What 
what we just pulled up here, what Ron just pulled mm -hmm. up, we have a, a chestahedron here. Yeah, so and that's that. The, there's two shapes here, because um, uh, this is not just a chestahedron. So what is a chestahedron? A chestahedron is a uh, sacred geometric shape. This sacred geometric shape was only rediscovered or discovered, you know, first time that we're aware of in a very long time at least, uh, in the year 2000 by Frank Chester, who lives right here in Mill Valley. Frank Chester is a math professor, art professor, and you know, he spends his whole life finding and playing with geometric shapes. And he discovered this seven-sided piece of sacred geometry. So you have like your five platonic solids, and this is moving up in the numbers. Uh, and it's the sacred geometric shape of the heart. Our heart basically is a chestahedron, and when it pumps, this is the shape that it's producing, and the blood that flows through our body actually spins in the shape. If you spin a chestahedron, it becomes a bell. It's essentially, it's an acoustic. It's a, you know, all these mm. things have resonance and sounds that they connect with. It's all in vibration, as I like to say, the free or the freaks can see and the frequency. But <laughs> all sacred geometry has a duality. And so the second uh, shape that you're seeing here is what's known as the de decatria which is the sacred geometric shape of the heart. And it should come as no surprise that the earth fits perfectly and the duality of the heart is the earth. And it also, duality goes, you can keep going downward, meaning the heart fits perfectly in the earth. And so the chestahedron sits inside of planet earth and it rotates on exactly this shape. And there's some pretty crazy stuff. It's worth looking this up. Frank Chester, go watch some YouTube videos. If this like touches, if there's, this is a rabbit hole for anyone that in yeah. the sacred geometry, you want, you, you want to yeah. look at it. Which is also interesting because if you take the word heart and you take the letter H and move it to the very end, it becomes earth. Mm -hmm. It's just odd how all these dualities, you know, kind of all line up so perfectly. Yeah. Uh, and so we chose the chestahedron as the logo for EOS. Yeah. So that's the EOS logo. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's not just a cool logo. Totally. It has <laughs> a lot of meaning. Yeah. But, well, everything yeah. You, you'll, you'll notice that we do, you know, is we try to have layers. Yes. And layers. Yes, yes, yes. Lots of meaning. In, interesting. This, this, um, we're removing a, a veil with some of the sacred geometry conversation. And I, I like to say piercing a veil. Yeah, piercing the veil. Yeah, Bernard Gunther likes to say that as well. We like him a lot, piercing that veil. Well, or if you know, like the Knights Templar, Percival means to pierce the veil, right? Sir Percival that finds the Holy Percival. Grail to bring the light to the world. Interesting. Yeah, these are the layers again, the, the layers. Next time, um, we'll have to speak more on what, you know, what exactly is going on with piercing the veil and remaining in these flow states, some of the stuff on plant medicines. Um, we're excited to unpack that with you on a future episode. Um, it's so interesting hearing you, uh, hearing that you like to walk around with this speaker blasting Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. I don't want to rule anyone. I should like to help everyone. Greed has poisoned men's souls. This sort of, this mentality of, 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 um, of, of, of what, was, what was communicated to us so long ago that is still so relevant today. Um, that message is, is very, very cool and I'm, I'm glad you picked that. All right, let's, um, let's wrap on our, on our simulation questions. Um, all right, we like to ask our guests just a couple questions on the way out. The first question we like to ask is, are we alone in the cosmos? Are we alone in the cosmos? Well, I can't point to any uh, you know, specific absolute evidence to you know, weigh in on this conclusively, but I'm convinced that 
we are not alone. But that's a subjective opinion, you know. Yeah. And where does the not alone lie for you? Uh, I do not think that life solely exists on this planet, but I also don't think that we're really from this planet. I mean, I believe our souls are celestial. I believe our souls are not of anywhere. We happen to, our souls happen to be in a vessel here on Earth, so we're Earthlings. I like to call this our Earth suits. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, the universe is the universe. You know, this just happens to be a planet within it where our souls are, you know, hanging out in, you know, vessels. And then the, the, the process of going into an earth suit and then what we do before and after that, what are, you, what are your thoughts about what happens before you enter the earth suit after? Well, uh, uh, you know, I normally don't talk about these things so, uh, so publicly, but I think, it's, I think it's a good thing to think about. I mean, this is these existential questions about yeah. religion and, you know, where and what and who do we come from. You know, I believe we choose our bodies. Uh, 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 I believe we kind of choose our missions and then, you know, we see what we do, but, um, uh, cause there's lessons to be learned. Yes. There are lots of, lessons. I believe that, you know, we're here to learn something. We're here to grow and, you know, we may be here multiple times. This may not be this, the only yeah, sure. call it, you know, if this were a video game or a simulation, I don't sure. believe this is a simulation or a game. I, it is a game, just not a video game. It's the great game. The grand it's the game. great game. You know, the, 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 the game of life. There's the a lot game. to learn. There's a lot to level up. Yeah, but it's, it, it's about that. It's about leveling up and you know, identifying the loops or the traps and the mistakes that you're repeating so that you can kind of break free, break the chain. Interesting. Uh, and, uh, uh, and continue to evolve, to continue to become more enlightened, more awakened, more aware, more conscious. Yeah. yeah. You know? Okay. And uh, like, you know, it's like synchronicities. I, I, I call them, you know, people are like, there are no such thing as coincidence. I call synchronicities coin incidences. Look at the spelling. <laughs> it's uh, like Mario. The universe yeah. is giving you synchronicities or coins being you know, yeah. basically put before you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, you, you already gave us the answer. You don't think we're in a simulation. That's our second I question. I believe it's real. I yeah, mean, it's yeah. more than that. I mean, you could call it that, but I think that yeah, that yeah. is... It's, sure, sure. it's much more real than that. It's a great game, as you said, a great game. But the universe is much more complicated than, you know, we're all... I mean, I know very little. We, yeah, we're <laughs> universal kindergarten forever. I love it. And then the last question we like to ask on the show, as we zoom into almost Puerto Rico over there by Cuba. <laughs> by, uh, by the way, the greatest thing, again, call to action, greatest yes. thing you can do for Puerto Rico, I mean, at, at the simplest level, like, is come check it out. Yeah, yeah. Just take a trip there. You have you. Yeah. The place benefits by you visiting. Yes, yes, of course, of course. And, yes, and you know, if, I mean, yeah. show up with good intentions and see, you know, if it calls to you. Yeah. It is paradise. It's you know, there's a giant rainforest there. You've got you know, bioluminescent bays more than anywhere in the world. I mean, you're, it's 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 enchanting. Yes, yes. It's that's like a, a, it's like a, it's like a portal. Sounds, sounds gorgeous. Absolutely need to visit. And that leads us to the question. The last one is: What is the most beautiful thing in the world? You, I mean, I am you, you are me, it's us. It's like, you know, the most important thing is you loving yourself, right? It's back to, you know, selfishness then, then out into selflessness, mm. you know, learning to truly love yourself. You know, you are, you are the most beautiful thing in the universe. And once you start to love thyself, once you start to feel that, 
everything else starts to get much more beautiful. Yeah. And so I, I, I think that's kind of uh, the most important thing. Because we're all, we're all one, and I guess I'll close on one little last, because I like words, money. Take the word money. The first letter is my. I mean, M, the last letter is Y or my. If you take the me, the I or the my out of money, one. you're left with one in the very middle, yeah. which is all that matters. We are all one. Take the my off money and you get the one. Wow, interesting, yeah. You've given this a lot of thought, Brock Pierce. <laughs> this is very interesting. I spent a lot of time on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's been an honor. There's so much beautiful wisdom that you've been unpacking and teaching us about. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We're really excited for more, for more rounds in the future. There's still a lot to teach and uh, to learn from you. Um, huge thank you for everyone for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. We would love to hear your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. Let's get the community chatting. Share, share, share more of the conversations that we were talking about today about digital currency and about blockchain technology, the impact that has on the world. Go and share, talk about it more with your communities. Huge shout out to Ron Vargas for producing and directing. Thank you very much. We greatly appreciate you. Thank you. And support the artists and entrepreneurs that you believe in go do cool things like go to puerto rico visit the artists and entrepreneurs they're the highest capita of art of, of artists in the united states i didn't know that a very interesting statistic support simulation our links are below as well help us grow help us financially stabilize we'd greatly appreciate that and go and build the future everyone manifest those dreams into the world we love you so much and we will see you soon peace